from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was, excuse me, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Mindy. Thank God for his word. The situation captivated the world. A boys' youth soccer team trapped in a cave this past summer. No one knew if they were alive or not, and so divers began to look for them in this huge cave. They were fighting the currents there in the cave underwater. As, as, they, as they looked for them, they laid ropes along the way to fi- figure out where they had been and help them get back. The, the divers moved further and further into the cave with each expedition. And then finally, on the ninth day, on the ninth day of the rescue operation, two divers made it to a, a sandy rise more than two kilometers into the cave. So they're more than a mile underground in this cave. Come to a sandy rise. They surface, no boys' soccer team, but they still had more rope to lay. So they continued on through a low spot that required them to swim through a narrow tunnel. They surfaced again to see all 13 boys. Now I want you to put yourself in the boys' perspective, to think of yourself there waiting nine days for rescue. You're trapped in darkness when suddenly in the murky water before you, you begin to see a faint light. And as you watch, this light becomes brighter and brighter and brighter until finally it emerges from the darkness and you realize rescue, rescue has finally come. That is how John describes Christmas in the passage that Mindy read to us. John places us in a dark cave, trapped in a world of darkness, a world of injustice, a world of pain, a world of suffering, unable to rescue ourselves. We we grope around in the darkness. We think we can help ourselves. We think we can find our own way out. The reality is we are hopeless and helpless, trapped in this world of darkness. And friends, if you put yourself in that cave this Christmas, you will better understand and better appreciate Christmas according to John's gospel. Because Christmas, you might say, Christmas here is about light penetrating the darkness 
to bring us rescue. It is about light penetrating this world of great darkness to bring us great rescue. And we see that really here in three ways. Three ways that the light of Jesus Christ penetrates our darkness. Let's see that together. First, as Christmas brings us the invincible light of Christ, you might say. Christmas brings us first the invincible light of Christ. I say invincible because of verse 5. Look at verse 5. We read, the light shines in the darkness. And notice, the darkness has not overcome it. And the light here is Jesus Christ. The darkness is this world in rebellion against God. And the light shines into the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome that light. Now you might have a translation that reads, the darkness has not understood it. Or the darkness has not comprehended the light. And that's possible. But it's better to see here this saying, overcome. The light of the darkness, rather, has not overcome the light. The same word is used in a similar context by John in chapter 12, where Jesus says, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you or overcome you. Same idea in chapter 1 here. Similar context, same word. The darkness will not overtake or overcome the light. In other words, verse 5 is describing the victory of the light, the invincible light, that the light will be victorious in what it has come to accomplish. And so you should ask, well, what has it come to accomplish? What will be this, this victory for this light? Well, certainly Jesus is victorious in many, many ways, too many to recount right now. But in context here, in this particular context, it seems as though John has a particular victory in mind. The victory of Jesus Christ ultimately, one day, bringing a brand new creation. And I say the victory here is especially a new creation because the context has to do with creation. John, John creates these parallels between the creation account of the book of Genesis and his own account in a number of ways. You might remember last week, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created, echoed in John 1, in the beginning was the word. He's got this creation idea in mind. In our passage, Genesis 1, God said, let there be light and there was light. Echoed in John 1, the light shines in the darkness. Again, do you hear the echo of the creation account? And it would seem there are more echoes as well. It's interesting. In Genesis, God's creative, creative work is explained in seven days. In John's gospel, in this same chapter, he begins to unfold Jesus' ministry in seven days. He has very intentionally repeated the next day and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, describing, it would seem, a seven-day week, echoing God's creation again. In fact, in Genesis, God's creation of mankind had to do with placing them in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Only in John's Gospel are we told that Jesus is arrested in a garden. 
Only in John's gospel are we told Jesus was buried in a garden. In fact, after his resurrection, only in John's gospel, Mary mistakenly identifies Jesus as a gardener. It's garden, garden, garden. It seems to be hearkening back to that first garden. In Genesis, God breathed life by his spirit into the first man, Adam. Only in John's gospel does the risen Jesus Christ breathe the Holy Spirit on his first followers. It seems John is painting a picture of this this new creation. That all things of this dark world, all things of this dark world will be one day renewed entirely. And you can be sure that's going to happen because the darkness has not overcome the light. The darkness will not be victorious. The light will be. The light is the invincible light of Jesus Christ that will one day bring a brand new creation. Think about it like this. In December 1863, the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow received a telegram that his son, one of his children, one of his six children, his son had been wounded in a battle in the Civil War. He'd been wounded severely. The the bullet had nicked his spine. And so Wadsworth Longfellow traveled down to Washington, D.C. to help care for his son. He was... Alarmed when the army surgeon said that his son's wound was very serious and paralysis might ensue. Well, this was compounded for Longfellow by the fact that two years earlier, Henry's wife had died in a tragic fire. While Henry had been napping, her robe caught on fire. He awoke to find his wife engulfed in flames. He tried to extinguish the flames on her as best he could with a rug and his own body, but she died from her severe burns in 1861. Longfellow's own burns were so severe he couldn't go to her funeral. In fact, he grew out a beard the rest of his life to hide the scars on his own face. He had said at one point that he feared he'd be put into an asylum for his grief. Now that's life, real life in this world. And now, two years later, he hears that his son Charlie might be paralyzed. And so this 57-year-old widower, father of six children, one possibly paralyzed, wrote a famous, now famous, Christmas poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. He writes of hearing Christmas bells ringing and imagines the angels in Luke chapter 2 singing, Peace on Earth. Peace on earth at the birth of Jesus Christ. But in his experience, this world of injustice, this world of suffering, this world of pain, this world of grief seems to mock that peace. And so the last stanza goes like this. See if you can relate. In despair, in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Maybe maybe that's what you're feeling right now. You faced injustice in your life, sorrow, pain, grief. You sing some of these songs, joy to the world, peace on earth, 
goodwill to men. It just seems like a cruel joke. Longfellow could identify. But then he adds this. Then pealed the bells, more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. Listen, the wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Do you hear the ultimate hope of the invincible light of Jesus Christ? Not denying the pain, not denying the reality now. There's a real realism now. But this fundamental optimism, you might say, ultimately, this hope that one day all things will be renewed. (laughs) The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. You see, friends, Christmas should bring you that hope as kind of a ballast for your soul. If you imagine a sailboat, it's got under the water this ballast, a lead keel, to keep it from capsizing. The winds can blow really, really strongly, and it might tip far over into the wind, but that ballast will keep it, up, keep it upright, and that's what this hope can be for you of the invincible light of Jesus Christ, a kind of ballast, a kind of ballast for your soul. That when the seas are incredibly rough and you think you might capsize, there is a hope holding you steady because you know the invincible light of Jesus Christ who will return and all things, friends, all things will be made new. All sorrows taken away. Every tear, every single tear wiped from your eyes. So first, let that hope assure your soul and sustain your soul and be kind of a ballast for your soul. This light here is an invincible light. And yet, secondly, we find here, secondly, Christmas brings the life-giving light of Christ. And here is probably John's focus, right? The life-giving, the life-giving light of Jesus Christ. Because next, next, the light of the world steps onto the stage of human history. We're introduced to one John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, who is a forerunner for Jesus. He blazes the trail, you might say, historically, And John is insistent in our passage, if you noticed, I am not the light. (laughs) Make no mistake. Don't think that I'm the light of the world. John testifies he's not the light. He says he bears witness to the light. And then we read in verse 9, look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's Bethlehem. He was coming into the world. That's the manger. He's coming into the world. This, this true light, the ultimate light, you might say. The long-awaited-for light now arriving. But notice, notice two things in this verse. Two things you should understand. Notice he gives, he gives light and so you should ask, well, what is that light? What is this kind of enlightening Jesus Christ gives. Well, if you look back to verse 4, which I skipped, 
you'd be told that Jesus has life in himself and that life is the light of men. It's almost identical to a verse you may be well familiar with, John 8, verse 12, where Jesus announces, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but listen, will have the light of life. You will have the light of life. The light, the enlightening here is is life. He gives you life. And when you read life in John's gospel, when you read life, he almost always means eternal life. John loves these terms, light and life. He uses them a lot. And when you read life, think eternal life. Think life forever with God, the kind of life we most desperately need. I was reading recently about the, the theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was arrested by the Nazi regime for his part in helping to conspire against Hitler when Bonhoeffer was put into prison. I think it's so sad. They executed him just weeks before the war ended in Europe. Just weeks beforehand. He's in prison. They finally call his name to come out and go to the gallows to be executed. And here are his words. This is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. This is the end, he says. It's the end of one life, but he says, for me, the beginning of life. That's the light. That's the light John gives in verse 9. So at our end, we say, I've only just begun to live. But the second thing you should notice, the second thing you should wonder about is, well, who is this everyone in verse 9? He's the life-giving light, but he gives light here to everyone. Does that mean in verse 9 that everyone, everywhere, receives eternal life in Christ? I mean, that looks like that's how it reads. And maybe just a little sidebar. You never want to build your theology out of just one verse. Because probably that writer is going to tell you more things that explains that one single verse. And that's what John does. This is, not, this is not eternal life to everyone without exception. This is eternal life to everyone without distinction. In other words, Jesus Christ holds out eternal life no matter who they are, no matter their race, age, background, culture, what have you. There is the offer of eternal life. It's what John shows us in chapter 4 in a scene I love with a woman from Samaria. Do you recall it? Jesus Christ is hung, uh, thirsty, rather. Not, um, he may have been hungry, too, but he's thirsty. He's tired, which is amazing when you think about it. The God-man, fully God and fully human, he's thirsty. He asks her for a, wa- a drink of water, which shocks this one from Samaria. She is surprised and shocked by Jesus' requests. She's shocked because Jews, in general, hated Samaritans. They considered the Samaritans kind of a half-breed. They were racially mixed people, you might say, left over from when the Assyrians kicked out the northern tribe of Israel centuries before. So that's strike one against this lady. Wrong racial background. And then Jesus exposes her sinful lifestyle. 
He says, go call your husband. And she, in a, in a wonderful glimmer of honesty, she says, um, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had seven husbands, and the guy you have right now is not your husband. Strike two. Sinful lifestyle. Wrong lifestyle. She strategically changes the subject and brings up, let's talk about then the local worship controversy, because we Samaritans, we worship up here. We don't go down to Jerusalem like God had said. Strike three. Wrong religious practice. Wrong race. Wrong lifestyle, wrong religious practice, strike three, three strikes, you're out, lady. But not for Jesus. He offers eternal life, not without exception, but without distinction. He says, I've got water for you too. And the water I give becomes a spring welling up to eternal Life. She's the poster child for the everyone in verse 9. <laughs> She's the poster child for verse 9. He saves not all without exception, but all without distinction. I think this means Christ, uh, Christmas, rather. Christmas should really kind of offend us in our culture today. It should be offensive. Because our day is one of religious inclusivism. Everyone's included. All religions equally valid. All paths equally leading to God. And Jesus is very inclusive in a way. He says anyone can come without distinction. No matter your race, background, situation. You can be a Samaritan in a simple season of life or a lifestyle with a religious practice that's all screwed up. But you can come. He's very inclusive. And radically exclusive. He says you can only come to me. Only to me, only in me will you find eternal life. Friends, this is Christmas. In John 11, Jesus goes to the funeral of a friend, Lazarus, whom he will raise from the dead. But first he encounters one of Lazarus' sisters and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes, whoever believes, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you hear that? Very inclusive. Whoever believes, and radically exclusive. I am the resurrection and the life. I read that at the state funeral for George H.W. Bush, one of the ministers quoted that passage saying that Jesus said, I am resurrection in life. I am resurrection in life, which is very inclusive sounding. I am resurrection in life. That's not what Jesus said. He offends us. He's very exclusive this way. I am the resurrection and the life, but if you come to him and him alone, you find that he is this life giving light who's come into the darkness. So let me ask you, what will you do with this inclusive, exclusive Christmas rescue? What will you do with this? What do you make of this? 
He saves all without distinction, but not without exception. It's been said that you can, you can flee from God. You can flee from God in, in two ways. One is to pursue sin headlong, to pursue rebellion headlong, to give yourself to all that God says in his wisdom and goodness would be off limits for us. Swiping left or right on Tinder, I don't know which way it is. But the hookup culture today is where you try to find life and satisfaction, but you find it only leaves you empty and broken. But the other way to flee from God is to try to create your own morality, to self-sufficiency, self-sufficiently, self-reliantly pursue self-righteousness. It's rebellion through personal accomplishment. Maybe for you, coming to Jesus seems awfully demeaning, and it is. It's saying, I'm trapped in a cave that I cannot get out of, left to myself. Even, even if you've come to this light, even if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, aren't we, aren't we prone to that second error? Begin to establish my own morality, left to myself, my own state of righteousness before God, or at least I, I add to the righteousness of Christ. At least I improve on the righteousness of Christ. At least, at least I'm doing something to maintain my standing before God, Right? I'm a spiritual do-it-yourselfer. I don't even go to Home Depot for this. I do it on my own. I, I, I maintain God's favor by my performance. Listen, that's deadening to your soul. If Christmas feels dead to you, that might be why. Because you start to think that your own performance, your own morality, your own righteousness somehow enhances this rescue somehow helps you out of that dark cave. And Jesus had some really harsh things to say to the religiously self-righteous. So friends, this Christmas, in light of this life-giving light who comes to us in our darkness, take the advice, take the advice of a Scottish theologian from the 17th century named David Dixon, who said this, He said, I've taken all my good deeds, all my good deeds, and all my bad, and cast them in a heap before the Lord, and fled from both, and betaken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him I have sweet peace. That's what you do with this inclusive, exclusive Savior who's come at Christmas, the life-giving light 
of Christ. You take all of your good deeds that you are tempted to trust in, tempted to boast about, tempted to rely on for your standing before God. You take all of those good deeds that you feel are so impressive and you cast them in a heap. And, friends, and you take all the bad deeds, all the things weighing on your soul right now, all the guilt you are aware of that you walked in on your conscience with today. You take all those bad deeds, you cast them in a heap as well, you make a nice big pile, and you flee from both. And you flee to Jesus Christ, the life-giving light of the world who's come for you to bring you rescue. See, Christmas brings this invincible light of Christ. Christmas brings the life-giving, the life-giving light of Jesus Christ. But thirdly, one more thing. Thirdly, Christmas brings the, let's call it the transforming light of Christ. Transforming light of Christ. You see, it's true that eternal life is what we need when we die, but there is a reality of eternal life being a present possession. Jesus said you pass from death to life. In this life, there's a reality now that transforms us. Let me show you what I mean. Verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 reads, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world in John's gospel is a world in rebellion against God. And here, because of our lostness, because of our rebellion, we don't even recognize him. This world through him, through whom God, uh, which was created through him, doesn't know him doesn't recognize him. In fact, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Literally, he came to his own abode. He came to his own home, you might say, and his own people did not know him. Imagine coming to your own home later on, going to your own home, and your family members don't recognize you, or your roommate doesn't recognize you if you have a roommate. Imagine that. Your kids say, who are you? I don't recognize you. I've never seen you in my life. Your spouse says, I don't know you. If you don't leave right now, I'm calling the police. That's what this is like on steroids. The creator, the one through whom all things were made, comes to his creation and we say, I've never seen you before. I don't recognize you, nor do I want you. You see, John, John knows he has to explain something. John knows he has to explain to his readers how the God-man, the agent of all creation in this book he's writing, gets rejected. How he comes to his own abode, his own home, his own people, and they don't recognize him, they reject him. John's got to explain that. So he sets it up here. And the answer is going to be his rejection is part of his rescue. The rejection you read about here is a means by which God brings a rescue to you and me. It's kind of like this. When those first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God and were hiding from God, they were trapped in their dark cave, you might say. Chris Lungard, an author, he imagines Jesus coming to Adam and Eve in their hiding. He imagines Jesus coming and visiting their dark cave and visiting our own. 
saying this. How miserable you are. How wretched you have become. Yet, Your present misery is nothing compared with what's to come. Eternal torment lies at your door. Eternal torment lies at your door. But, Jesus says to Adam and Eve and to us, look up once more. Look up. Look to me. I put myself in your mess. I'll bear the burden of guilt and punishment that would sink you eternally to the bottom of hell. I'll be made a curse for you that you might be blessed forever. That's what's going to happen in this gospel. That's the transforming light of Jesus Christ. Jesus took our guilt and punishment that would have sunk us eternally to hell. Jesus was made a curse for us that we might be blessed forever. You might say, blessed how? Well, the next verse tells us. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who, who believed in his name. Notice, he gave the right to become children of God. Now just put this together. You just saw rejection. The world rejects him. The world rebels against him. The world doesn't want him. The light invades to so transform us. Our whole status, our whole identity becomes brand new. We become children of God, God's own child, adopted by God. You might say God takes you from the courtroom to the family room, the courtroom where we should have been found guilty because we were guilty, into his own family room. You know, it's a great thing, friends, it's a great thing to be forgiven by God the judge. It's a great thing to be declared righteous by God the judge. And yet, it's greater still to then be adopted by God the Father. And if you've believed, that's what's happened to you. God has transformed your identity, transformed your status by transforming you personally. Verse 13. People who were born of God, born rather, not of blood nor of the will of flesh, not of natural means, not of physical birth, nor of the will of man, but of God. They are people born of God, spiritually born again. And of course, in John chapter 3, he's going to unpack this, with a guy named Nicodemus, religious leader, comes to Jesus at night, Jesus blows his mind, says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. He goes, what? can be born again. And of course, he's referring to spiritual birth, spiritual new life. In other words, friends, the transforming light of Christ, the transforming light of Christmas, transforms your status, transforms your identity as he transforms you. And so I want to ask you, are you living in the good of this transformation? Are you living in the good of this? This transformed identity, this transformed status before God, 
Because a transformation has happened within you if you have believed. I mean, if you are a Christian, let's narrow it to this. If you are a Christian, what do you make, friends, what do you make of being God's own child, adopted, God as your father? What do you make of that? John, in his first letter, 1 John, he says, See what kind of love, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Are you seeing that love for you? Are you aware of that love? Are you aware that God is your Father who loves you right now? You're living in the good of that. Now, for me, that awareness goes up and down. For me, that awareness is like a roller coaster. Sometimes I'm aware of his love. Sometimes I'm not. Probably you can identify. And Christmas, Christmas can help us. Because at Christmas, let's use John's analogy, the light of this world traveled to the most distant orphanage possible, this dark world. He came to this orphanage of utter darkness, an orphanage of rebellion, an orphanage of people who hated him, who mocked him, spit on him, beat him, killed him. And you and I would have done the same. An orphanage of people who rejected him, and didn't want his rescue. But if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, God entered that dark orphanage and saw you and said, I want that one. I'm going to set my love on on that one. I'm going to take that one over there. Oh, I know he hates me right now. I know she's pursuing sin headlong. I know he thinks he's got his own righteousness. But I was made a curse for that one. I took the guilt and punishment that should sink that one to an eternal hell. I stood in the place of that one on a cross. And I have risen that that one might have new life and be my child, whom I love. This is Christmas. God came to the orphanage. And didn't just forgive your sins, as amazing as that is. Didn't just declare you righteous, as amazing as, as that is. He took you home to the family room to make you his own beloved child. So friends, are you seeing yourself in that dark cave left to yourself? Are you imagining yourself stranded in that orphanage left to yourself? If so, you're beginning to appreciate Christmas more. When the invincible light, the life-giving light, the transforming light of Christ entered your darkness to bring you to himself, to give you hope as a ballast for your soul, life now and forever, making you an object of his great love. And these are the things we want to celebrate as we take the Lord's Supper together.